Hello and welcome to an episode of Nimsy Live, where I, Tucker Johnson, am going to be your host today, and I have a couple guests today, Sylvie Nunez and Anne Montagna, who you may have seen before because they were recently presenting at Loke From Home and presenting on global content enablement and global content strategy, and I thought it was a very interesting topic, so I invited them on the show to, to come talk to us, but... Really quickly, before we get into that, uh, just a quick introduction to the program. Nimsy Insights, we are a market research and consulting company. We specialize in the language services business and the localization, translation, internationalization, globalization, culturalization, all thoseization in that whole space. We've been around for about four or five years now, originally founded by myself and my business partner, Renato. We do these pop-up streams every once in a while, um, live because we can and because there's so many different interesting people to talk to in our industry and we just want to talk to them all so without further ado i am not who you came here to see today you probably came here to see my guest and so let's go around and introduce each other let's start with you sylvie because you're you're next to me here on the screen tell us a little bit about yourself and about what we're talking about today Excellent. So first of all, thank you so much for having us here today, Tucker. It's a great honor. I know some of the top people in the industry have been here in Mindy Live, so it's a pleasure, really. And thanks to everyone that's joined, and a special shout out to everyone at Optimational. Thank you for supporting us today. So long story short about me. Um, I'm a fan of our industry. I'm a fan of marketing, and especially I'm a fan of SEO and its power. I believe that there's a digital world out there that's yet not very exploited in other languages other than English. So my aim as a professional translation, uh, as a translation professional, I mean, is to help brands get out there, reach new international spaces, walk with them and learn with them. And if anyone's interested, you can check out my background on my LinkedIn page. And we have we have your LinkedIn page up on screen here, so uh, or right here under title, so you can go check her out. And I'm going to be talking a little bit more about Optimational in a little bit, so give you guys a, a chance to plug that. But let's turn it over to to Anne. Anne, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting us. It is a pleasure. Same as Sylvie. Uh, well, generally speaking, I'm a certified English and Spanish translator. I have a strong passion for languages since I was in high school. I'm almost 30 already, so 10 years. Um, and in the past years, I discovered that our industry is full of different possibilities. So I'm currently specializing in SEO translation and UX writing because I think that customer-centered or user-centered processes are very trendy right now. Uh, so, well, and at Optimational, uh, as part of my role as a strategy director, I help in I take part in sales strategies uh, processes, and I'm also uh, I also perform linguistic tasks. Nice. So well, let's let's talk a little bit about Optimational. You guys both mentioned this. This is uh, this is your company. Uh, tell but and for those that have not heard about Optimational. Give us your history. Like, wh when did you get started? How did you get started? Why did you get started? And what are you working on? 
she is the responsible, so go on, Sylvie. So, yeah, optimational. Um, we like to call ourselves a boutique translation company. Love it. Because we really like to see ourselves as kind of different from what many other companies are doing in the industry. We help brands uh, create and execute their multilingual content strategies. We help them determine what components are, are key, they should be, which ones should be considered, what should be prioritized. So we kind of help them develop this holistic strategy to, me to meet their international goals. And this is why we really see ourselves as translation partners. And this is pretty much what represents our values. Um, sorry. Yeah, no. So um, I, I love this idea of the boutique LSP, right? Because there's no such thing as a small LSP in, in my book. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think... LSPs that describe themselves as, oh, we're just a small LSP or we're just a small regional translation agency, it's, you're not giving yourselves credit, not you guys because you're obviously doing this, but they don't give themselves credit because the whole nature of having a language service provider and the whole model of our industry is this flexible supply chain model. So just because you're not offering French translations today doesn't mean that you necessarily can't fulfill that need. So you guys are uh, you guys are basically doing it all over there. So watch out for these guys as they as they're entering the scene. But now that we're done shamelessly plugging our, our respective companies, let's talk about global content uh, global content strategy. And your presentation that you you gave the other day, you um, you outlined it very very nicely as far as like this, this high level overview of what people need to do or what organizations need to do when they're going global and this is a, a common scene that we see in the industry which is organizations that don't have a mature localization department they they figure it out they figure out how to go global themselves but not necessarily always using best practices from our industry so it can be kind of challenging when when people that are familiar with those best practices come in and say, hey, what's going on here? Like, what what, what did you guys build, um, build? So what you were advocating for in your presentation is kind of more of a data-driven preparation approach to market entry. So rather than saying, oh, we need to go into these 10 markets, let's figure out how to do it, like, you're kind of taking the, the stance of like, whoa, whoa, slow down, we need to get some insights about this first. What kind of information, what kind of data, what kind of research do organizations need to be looking at before they decide to go global? And whoever wants to answer this question, <laughs> this, is the, this is the challenge with having, having two of you on here at the same time, is that like, oh, I'll, I'll let the other person answer the question. Yeah, and we're in the same room, so that's why we have to <laughs> turn off my uh, on. Um, yeah, we have to research the market first because many, many clients come to us wanting to like expand the business into different countries or with the same language, but each country, each region within the country is very different. So it's very important to do that, that, uh, carry out that analysis before branching out. What the people, what the audience is, uh, more appealing to, uh, in that particular case, in that particular portion of the country in that, in that language. I think that we have, as language service providers, you have to help the client figure out 
what the audience you're trying to get, you're trying to reach is interesting the most. Like that's very, very, very important. It's not about just branching out, translating into Spanish from, from Spanish because we, we speak Spanish here in Argentina, we speak Spanish in Spain, in Mexico, and all of them are very different campuses. Even here in Argentina, we have some sub dialects within our, that are the same, the same within the same country. So it is a complex task, but it needs to be done before before planning on ongoing global. That's for sure. Yeah. So and you talk about taking in like a goal oriented approach to market entry too about like really being clear on defining what are the goals? What are the challenges I'm trying to overcome? What am I trying to accomplish before, before we go into this other market? Talk to me a little bit about that. Like what is their role in setting goals or using smart goals that we've talked about a little bit? What is the role of that in the market selection process in the, the, the background research? Um, in my opinion, that setting a, a smart goal beforehand, it's, it's crucial, smart goal, because the client needs to know where is, are they going? Like, um, when planning on a strategy, the workflow, the team, and the technology are very important. And before doing that, we, we need to know the, the goal. Because each uh, different workflow, different steps of the workflow will have different results depending on what the client is trying to, 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 to achieve at the end. So it's not the same a localization, like a transcreation or a translation itself. So it has to do with, with the whole process, the whole process. It's the, the, the select the smart goals, the content, the scalable process of the workflow, the team and the technology. They are all like the, the, the same holistic process. So the goal would set the, the tone for um, selecting or building this scalable process that is going to be um, in, the, in the new market in the, in the following years or, or months or, or the time period you're cho chosen to, you have chosen to, to market your product. Sure, sure. And I, t I talk a lot about market research because I work for a market research company. But sometimes I have to stop when having a conversation with somebody about doing research on a specific market and understand exactly what type of market research is needed here because there's different types of market research. We've been doing here at NIMSI, we've been getting a lot of requests for user research. So like user experience research, like how do my actual users engage with my product? Um, what are what are their perceptions of localized versions of different things? And so that's focusing on the user, but there's also like high level, like cultural research, right? Which is still focused on the users, but it's not as individual. It's more like how is East Asian culture going to respond to this? How are, you know, colors is always an example that people like to use. Although I, I, I don't think I've ever worked on a project where I've actually localized colors for a language. It, it, it is an interesting topic that people like to talk about because different colors um, contain different meanings across cultures. But I, I 
see here that um, as uh, in my notes that I was taking as I was watching your thing, you, you're talking about insights. You're talking about interviews and surveys. You're talking about Google and social media analytics. So Google analytics, social media analytics. You're talking about trade and economic issues. You're talking about Google trends. All of these different sources for doing your market research. And there's a time and place for each of them, surely. Where is the time and place for looking at Google Analytics versus actually going out and doing surveys or conducting focus groups? Because when we say research, we can mean different things. So if I'm starting out a globalization program, and Sylvie, maybe you can take the stage on this one. Like, what research do I start with? Okay, that's, that's a great question. So basically, the kind of research and how in-depth you go with the research, I believe that will vary a lot depending on the resources you have, the size of your business, etc. But in terms of, um, I mean, we have more information than ever. We have access to a lot of information. We know where people are coming from. We know how they're interacting with our site, what, what content they find most useful. So we have a great opportunity to gather insights from there. I mean, surveys, they're super useful they will help you learn a lot about the users about their preferences their interests but with analytics with social media analytics with google analytics you actually get to see what it's what's what's going on how they're interacting and you can use that information to build your own strategy i mean if i go to my website and i realize that i'm receiving a lot of traffic from spain for example and my website is only in english then why don't i try why don't you know it's, you don't have to go all in, but why don't you try a few things and, and use that as reference? So when is a, a good point? I mean, it will depend on your business. If you're just starting, you won't have much analytics, but if maybe if you have already started building your reputation, your content strategy, then, then you can start using that information to build the foundations of your strategy. That's a really good point. What, what you're talking about is basically applying the principles of user centricity at scale. I want to say, I want to say the principle of user centricity at scale, applying that to all of the markets in which you operate in. Um, because what I've seen, my observation is a lot of companies have a really mature, well thought out, well thought out process for understanding and adapting to their end users in their domestic market because that's where they started that's where their bread and butter is those are the customers that they know the best but then when they decide to go global those best practices aren't carried over into the international user base so the same amount of effort doesn't go into understanding their german users as it does when they first started when they first we're doing the product design in their local market, presumably in America in this example. So, and nor should it, nor should it, nor should companies be spending as much to understand their um, each market that they're going into as they do their domestic market. There absolutely needs to be some economies of scale there. But when I think of Google Analytics, I think of, this is the way I explain it. It's like surveying all of your users at once. Right. So it's like rather than sending out a survey or rather con than conducting a focus group with your end users and saying, like, how do you like my website? 
how do you, um, what pages do you go to? What, where did you hear about us? Um, do you come back? How many times a week do you check our website? Instead of having a really intrusive survey and kind of, you know, being nosy and bugging your, your users about it, it's a nice way to monitor and get that feedback in real time at scale. Because when you have hundreds of thousands of people hitting your website every day or tens of thousands of people or even thousands of people, it's, you can't talk to all of them. You just can't. So you need to get that from Google Google survey. Not Google survey, Google mm -hmm. Google Analytics. Yeah. Uh, yes, sorry. and Sorry. Um, talking about Google Analytics, I was thinking about that. Um, when you are selecting the content, talking about the marketing, what kind of strategy, it is very important to take into consideration Google Analytics to to know, uh, to check, evaluate uh, what sections of the website are, are driving more traffic so that you can select that content and use that as reference to localize a content in the target language. So that's a, that's a good idea. You can use Google Analytics to, to check what content is driving more traffic to your website in the source language. And that apply to the language. Yeah, and that you know, if, if there's someone out there listening to this, it's like I don't know where to start. I don't know what languages to start. Google Analytics, Google Analytics. You go check it out because what it's going to tell you is it's going to tell you all about who is who is currently consuming your stuff. And one thing that I say all the time is that if you are online or if you sell an online service or product, um, not necessarily products because there's international shipping, but especially if you sell like a software as a service or some sort of app and you're online, which most people are, then you're international. Then you have international customers because anyone in the world, more or less, can can access your, your content. So the question isn't, do you want to be international? The question isn't, do you want to be global? The question is more, do you want, how do you want your global customers to perceive you? And that's what you have control over. You don't have control over whether or not your customers are seeing you in global markets, but you do have control over how they see you. And in, in your guys' experience, um, what what is the the biggest thing that people don't think of when going into a market? Of course, they think like translating, like we get it. Like people want to see content in their native language. Like and we have data on that. I, I, I don't want to get into it, but people want to see content in their native language. But what else? What what are people missing? What's the number one mistake that you've seen people seeing? I know this is an out of the blue question, but and I'm not asking you for for any client specific stories or to break any NDAs on this. So please don't. Maybe the culture. I culture. think they overlook the culture. Yeah. Also. I ha I I like like um exemplifying localization this example which is kind of cliche but i give, I give an example not a, a the website localization but uh for example a tv commercial imagine that it's like um a company that is selling tables and they prepare this tv commercial where there's a family gathering where people is drinking cafe and that could be appealing for for example the united states but here in argentina we can when we gather together with family we tend to drink this round thingy uh, called mate. So that, that would be more appealing to our, our, our audience. So it, it's thinking about the culture. And I think that many companies that are going global, they don't tend to think about that. 
It's not about language. And even language varies across countries, across regions. Um, I, I, love, I love to have my country as an example because it's very like a multicultural, we are very diverse. Um, so jumping into the website localization, you have like a popcorn website, for instance. Here in Cordoba, where we live, we call it in Spanish, Pururu, starting with P-U, Pururu, P-U, yeah. But in our neighboring province, Santa Fe, they call it Pororo with P-O. And that's a national debate, to be sure, to be honest. So you need to research and take into account those nuances of the culture that are very important for, for us. And it will be more appealing to the target audience once they're buying your product. So I think that's that's um, that's the main problem, not language itself, but that's these cultural differences that that lights beneath. Uh, Sylvia, you've been awful quiet here. Well, well, I have to say that I agree with Anne that I really think that quality and culture, both things, are things that people uh, take for granted sometimes. I was going to point out to a, a very short story. Uh, from Target, you know Target, the this shop. It's really big, United States. It has stores everywhere. Oh, I know. I've uh, got kids. I know Target. Target. I know Target. Exactly. My kids know Target. They know uh, exactly where the Lego aisle is. <laughs> yes. So, so it's pay more, no, uh, buy more, pay less. I think that's that's the way it goes. So, um, they expanded to Canada. I, I read this. Uh, story in a book. I can't recall the name right now, but they expanded to Canada without doing any investigation of the, you know, of the target audience of where they were going. They just had an investment. They bought a whole bunch of stores uh, in Canada that had closed, and in a matter of one year, they opened a whole bunch of stores of targets in Canada. And I don't recall how long it lasted, but it went really bad. And what happened I was that they hadn't. Oh yeah, I'll I'll send you the the book. So what happened was that they expanded, they began their content strategy, their their strategy, they began building the stores, etc. They were just like in the U.S. The thing is that um, the price is more expensive in Canada. Prices are more expensive in Canada. Yeah. So they weren't able to meet this this price is key that they were selling in the U.S. They never. Um, updated their uh, their what's it called um, so th their brand values they never yeah, updated yeah. their brand values to Canada so in a matter of a very short time they had to close all the stores and they did this twice they then expand uh, tried to expand into Canada again online and they had a whole bunch of problems with uh, I don't know more technical issues and issues with pricing localization and stuff so it, it really matters to investigate the culture where you're going to really understand what they think because you can't just assume that they believe the same things that you do. Or that they're willing to pay the same amount for the same thing. Or that they right? – Yeah. Or, I mean that covers mm – -hmm. when you say you can't assume that they believe the same things as you you do, that, that there's so much to unpack there. That covers so much. And you mentioned pricing localization. And pricing localization is something we don't talk about a whole lot. 
in this industry, which is which is weird because this is the localization industry. But um, at least on the vendor side, um, I, I'm sure this is a thing that 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 client clients need to to deal with it. But I have not yet talked to a localization team on the enterprise side that it has been included in that conversation about how to localize prices. But it, it's an important part of the the conversation because pricing, like other things, affect the customer experience, and customer experience is affected by the the customer expectations, and the customer expectations are affected by the customer's culture in which they they operate, and these are the things that that are really interesting to look at. Like, so return times, like here in, here in the United States, I can go to a store and I can buy something, and a week later, I can take it back and I can return it and I can get my money back for it. And we are very, not all stores, some stores don't allow you to do this, right? But we are very, very um, liberal in our return policies. You can pretty much return anything for any reason, no matter what. Now, that's not the same in in every culture around the world. So for a retailer like Target, they need to, they need to know that going into it. Um, like, what are the expectations? Shipping times are another one. You know, if, if I'm going in for, with an e-commerce strategy and I'm going to go direct to consumer, like, how long do customers expect shipping times to be? I'm, I'm here in Seattle, like, right next door to Jeff Bezos, so I'm spoiled. I can order something and have it come in the same day. If I, I get really upset if I have to wait two days for something to come. But in other countries... Lucky you. I know, right? In Cordoba... And when you order something from Amazon in Cordoba, how long does it take to get there? Honest question. I don't um, think we get it from Amazon. Uh, the, there you go. <laughs> right? In, interesting. Well, the, the, the equivalent is uh, Mercado Libre. And uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. It depends. It depends where you live, actually. Yeah. Because it's the largest uh, province. So maybe we are, we are lucky enough. But yeah, a couple of days, maybe a week. It depends. Yeah, but still, these are things that um, these are things that we need to know before going into country because these are things that will surprise you, and often that that surprise can take a negative form. You know, using Target as the example that, that you were looking at. So that's a that's a fascinating example. Did you? Um, so that was from a book that you read, Sylvie, or that was a case study that you have. No, it was from a book that I read. I'll share it with you later. I don't, I don't recall the name right now. All right. But it's something like international growth, something like that. I'll share you, with you the details. It was very interesting. I have this. I have a growing library of localization and globalization-related books that I um, <laughs> have not read yet. So I, I, can add it to my, I can add it to my library there of, of books that I need to read. Story. I want to talk about story. Um Research data taking taking a research back approach to market entry is is very interesting if you tell it in the right story format, right? Because data is data. It it is there. It is not a story. It has to be crafted and forged into the message that it's um, you want it to. I, I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't make you it look like you're manipulating data because that's not the point. But the idea is an Excel spreadsheet doesn't tell me anything. I need to have a story written about that. Talk to me a little bit about the importance of storytelling in, in research. Um, 
I, I think you're going to have to paraphrase that. To paraphrase. So when, when you're doing the market research, so we've got our SMART goals. We know what we want to accomplish, right? We've defined our study. We're going to send a survey. We're going to send a user survey, and we're going to do a review of the Google Analytics. All right, I found out that my French customers want to see the content in French. Wow, like big surprise. No, but I am not surprised behind that. How do I take that data and transform that into a message that I can take to senior management and say, I need more budget for the French market or I need to expand into these markets? What are some of the best ways to do that besides just throwing a CSV file or a, sending a link to the analytics and saying, look, dummy, we need to localize? Yeah, I agree that the way you present that information is key so that someone listens to you. I mean, translation is not usually the where people want to invest their funds in. So it is key to present the information in a way that is interesting for whoever is reading it. We personally use, uh, we have this template with uh, very exhaustive uh, information regarding uh, different sources and uh, like a description of the strategy. And this is basically where we present. We present a report with data, with statistics. Where we get these statistics from, NIMSI. We get them from Google Trade, uh, from Google Trends. We get them from Google Analytics. We get them from trade and economic statistics to see, I don't know, how the country is going, to see whether it's doing good or not so good, whether it would be better to invest in another country. So basically, that's our way of presenting information. And I'm curious to know what is your way? Well, what is my way? So when I talk about like how to do research for a market, and there's there's so much good research out there already. So there's we call that um, secondary research or document or research review, meta-analysis, whatever you want to call it. But you start with looking at what's already out there. So if we got a client that wants to go into Zimbabwe, okay, let's see what information is already out there. You mentioned you mentioned a few of them, right? Google Trends is interesting to see, especially if you're doing like SC or keywords research or something. Google Trends is interesting. Google Analytics, based upon if I'm already operating in certain markets, Google Analytics is interesting because I can see what are my my users actually doing there. Um, survey, and so this is all, I, the Google Analytics is more primary because that's like my data. But you start with the secondary data, the document review, all of that stuff. Then you move on to looking at, all right, what primary data do I already have? Because a lot of organizations are already collecting a lot of information out there and they don't even know it. So start asking around internally. Um, ask your finance department, ask your marketing department, what data are we tracking? Where is it located? Can I look at it? Um, can I combine it with my data to start trying to make um, better decisions? The next level up from that is you start direct surveying. So start identifying customers, sending surveys to the customers, asking them direct questions. And then if you wanna go one level deeper, what we would actually do is like, convene focus groups and especially since 2020 like the virtual focus group is kind of king now you can get a bunch of people together in a virtual room who use a service or a product and have a direct conversation with them about it and that is where you really 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 get the interesting insights you can get some interesting insights and if you are doing a survey i would recommend having at least a few open-ended questions 
if, if you're paying for a survey, it's going to cost you a little bit more. But those open-ended questions are where you really get the interesting insights, where you give the people the opportunity to say what they really think. Um, and that can be worth its weight in gold. Now, I say all this, like you ask, like, well, how does NIMSI do research? And that's just kind of one way that we can do it. But I say all this to encourage people to do their own research. And I know that sounds funny because why wouldn't I be saying, like, no, you should hire NIMSI or hire Optimational to do all your research? And you should. You should absolutely do it. Spend money with NIMSI. Spend money with Optimational. That's fine. But you can do it yourself too. And I think this is important to, to point out because it's a great starting point. When you are just putting your feelers out there, when you're like toying with the idea of starting a localization program or toying with the idea, experimenting with new markets, you're not going to call Nimsy and say, hey, Nimsy, I want to pay you $50,000 to research all these countries. No, you're not going to do that. You're going to do it yourself. So I always encourage people to start at home before you reach out to an expert. And it breaks my heart to say that because I am an expert or my company is an expert. Your company is an expert. So sorry if I, I'm cam cannibalizing business here for us, but I'm a firm believer in empowering people to do their own research, empowering people to learn about their own brand, because if you do that, they're going to want more. That's the thing about research. Like you, you send one survey and you walk away with it with five answers and 15 more questions for the next survey, right? It, it's addictive. It's like getting a tattoo. As soon as you, as soon as you get the results from your first survey back, you're already planning the next one. So that's, that's my answer. I, I completely I, agree. Yes. I completely agree with you. There's nobody that knows your business better than you do. So the type of, uh, market research that you can do it, it can have awesome results and something else that I wanted to point out is that um, I just forgot my idea <laughs> that's fine we have a we have a comment here from Paige Rendone you know Paige hi. Rendone hi Paige great timing I don't all right Paige you saved us you saved us from a brain fart thank you it says culturalization is key great point Sylvie and Anne so for you guys thank you but i only have one comment so i can only save you for so long that's okay because we are pulling up on... i remembered yes i i remember so i was gonna say that it's also key that interdepartmental um you know communicating with the different departments in a business to you know you can get the best insights there because they're working with different the sales team, the marketing team, the HR team, they're working with people from a whole bunch of different, they have a lot of experiences. So I think that's a key resource too, to mention on where to obtain the insights from. I think it's really important to use internal resources. That's a really, really good point. And it's something that I encourage enterprise side uh, localization teams to do quite a bit more and more. And we're seeing this happen now. You're starting to see job descriptions and roles pop up for these internal, they, they go by different titles, but they're essentially internal localization evangelists whose job is essentially to go, it's an account management job. It's a sales job, right? It's going out to other teams internally in the organization um, and asking them, how can we provide you better service? That's what a salesperson does. 
I know, oh, salesperson sells. No, a salesperson doesn't sell. A salesperson provides service and facilitates, you know, the exchange of services and, and money. And we're starting to see that role more and more on the client side where they actually have these internal people that are company liaisons who go out and talk to the marketing team or they talk to the development team um, and ask questions with the marketing team like, hey, what research have you done on our user base in Western Europe? Oh, none? Hmm. Would you like some help with that? Sure, we, we can help you with that because we are the globalization team and we own globalized strategy because we've decided to own globalized strategy. And we're starting to see more and more organizations do this, globalization organizations, and it's really super empowering. And I think it's a huge missed opportunity when they're not doing this, when they're not actively selling for lack of a better term to their internal stakeholders and building those relationships because there's so much information that they that we can get from other departments internally but more importantly i would say there's so much information that we have a responsibility the globalization team has a responsibility to share with with those other teams so I I hear you when you say, like, check with other teams internally, check with other people. Internal sources of information are going to be one of your best sources. Absolutely agree. Not only are they going to be one of your best sources of information, they're also going to be one of the best consumers of the research and the expertise that you hold, that you have on the globalization team. We have another comment here. Tony, Tony Meloro, interdepartment research is key too. Great point, Sil. So you know Tony, I can tell, because he's calling you by a nickname, Sil. Um, it would be great to normalize an internal solutions architect to serve the company needs. Ooh, ooh I could talk a little bit about this. What's, what's your guys' uh, thoughts on this solutions architect role? It's kind of what I was just talking about. No, are you are, are you on mute? Have you guys have you have you heard of this uh, solutions architect role? It, it's pretty it's pretty common on the LSP side. I haven't heard an actual solutions architect on the client side. I think they go by other names, but essentially it's this idea of somebody who goes to different departments, gathers requirements, and puts together solutions. Mm -hmm. right. Particularly, I haven't heard heard uh, of, of architectural. Um, yeah, so. the solutions architect, it, it's it's more common amongst larger LSPs uh, because it's kind of a role that you need a critical mass in order to support. So like smaller LSPs can't have uh, a senior level person who's not directly managing projects. There's just not room in the budget for it. So, But at some of your larger LSPs, you have this role, it's called the solutions architect, knowledge lead, whatever the, the term is. And it's essentially people with experience and abroad, not necessarily deep, preferably broad and deep, but a broad knowledge of the industry, of the solutions available in the industry. And by solutions, I mean not just tools, but also processes and stuff like that, um, organization structures, who can go and basically just solve solve challenges for people. And... Um, super useful when, when I worked on the LSP side, it was super useful to have a solutions architect in my back pocket because as a program director, as sales support, 
I didn't have all the answers. I didn't have all the answers. And it's like a yeah. guru. What's that? It's like a guru. It's like a guru, right? Yeah, it's like a guru. And it's essentially, I, I think at one of the companies I used to work for, we toyed with the idea of calling them gurus. Or I think actually in our Rosario office, there we, there was an idea floated that we, we turned the knowledge leads title into gurus or something like that. But yeah, that, that, that's essentially it. That's essentially it. So Tony, thank you for the comment. Yeah, thank you for the comment. I was going to say that our our guru uh, used to be Yost Desh. Oh, yes. I think that's how you pronounce. It. Yeah, yeah, he was like our our guru. We would go for to solve our issues. So I guess that will be kind of like Zulch's architect function. Well, if you got Yost on your side, then you're in good company because I mean, shoot, that guy. There's not anything that guy doesn't know about the translation side of this industry. I've, I've seen him just give presentations where it's like, oh, here's the whole history of language technology since 1980, starting with the Mormons. and Yeah, so yeah, you know what I'm talking about if you've got someone like Yost on your team. Well, let's, I'm just looking at the time here. We're, we're about 40 minutes into this and I do have a hard stop. I got to go pick up my, my business partner. I'm serving as I wear many hats here at Nimsy. Today I'm wearing the Uber driver hat, so I got to go pick up Renato from somewhere. Any closing thoughts or closing arguments? Um, more information about Optimational, what do you guys do before before we end up here? No, I just have like a conclusion out of all of this. Yeah. Basically, the aim of, uh, of why we were here today is we would love to be able to help businesses kind of organize their strategy, set their ideas clear, make sure they have clear goals for their content strategy. There's a lot of content out there and not skipping these steps, such as the market research, it can be key in the results you see from the whole strategy. So I really, I, I strongly support the use of a strategy, even if it's something very basic, but it's important to set goals, to to do this market research beforehand, and the, the strategy will just work. So that's my final comments. Thank you so much for having us today you're, again. You're, you're welcome. I agree with everything, and I would just say, and... Hire Optimational or Nimsy to do that research if, if, if it's a blocker. Uh, as I say, you are completely capable of getting started on your own. You absolutely can start playing around with data. You absolutely can start playing around doing your own research. There's no need to wait. There, you don't need to hire a Power BI specialist. You don't need to hire an internal UX researcher. You can get started today. But if you need help, give us a call. Give Nimsy a call, give Optimational a call, and we're here to help. So with that, I think we'll we'll end this up. Thank you once again, Sylvie, Anne. It's it's been a pleasure. You guys, this is Thank the first you. live stream I've done for like a week or two, and it'll probably be the last live stream I do for a little while. Um quick update for the program is that I'm doing a little bit, we are doing a little bit of revamping here on, on Nimsy Live behind the scenes. So we've been kind of closed, closed for business and we'll be opening up with a refreshed look and feel in a few weeks. So stay tuned for that. But with that, 
Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Congrats and thank you for having us. Yeah, with that, we'll we'll call it a day here. So thank you very much and thank you everybody for listening. Mm-hmm.